is music notes and more with your host, Jason Ginty. All right, here we go. Nirvana takes a bass to the face. Sweet child of mine was luck and Slash hates it. I get a job in radio. Jimi Hendrix, Miles Davis, and Paul McCartney, the band that almost happens. And Johnny Cash sings for a lumberjack and saves his ass. That and much more for the week of September 9th. We take a look back in music and pop culture history. It was this week back in 1992 that Nirvana's bass player Chris Novoselic knocked himself unconscious during the MTV Video Music Awards program. That's right, in front of millions of viewers on TV, he threw the bass he was playing way up in the air near the ending of uh, one of the songs, the big finale, you know. And when it came down, instead of him catching it with his hands, he caught it with his face. Ow, shit! That uh, busted his face wide open, blood was pouring out all over the place and left him a little disheveled. You'll never guess who Chris Novoselic blamed the ill-fated toss of the bass guitar on. That's right, he blamed Axl Rose. You see, there was bad blood between Nirvana and Guns N' Roses that year backstage. Remember, it's 1992. The heavy metal, hair band stuff had been dominating, and Guns N' Roses was about as big as it gets. Then you got these grungy-looking, little skinny, weird guys in Nirvana. They're slowly becoming the next big thing, so I think you had a little bit of a crossroads right there. Well, anyway, it was Axl Rose who famously told Kurt Cobain backstage to, quote, get your bitch in line after Courtney Love teased Axl. Now, tensions continued to rise up until later, and as Novoselic says, he says, quote, I was walking towards the stage and came across my now friend and colleague Duff McKagan from Guns N' Roses. I think Duff was kind of under the influence back then, drugs, uh, and he must have heard something from Rose and had a few bad words for me. Novoselic goes on to say, I was already a little bit bent out of shape and instantly replied with the same sentiment. In other words, he said some bad words to Duff McKagan backstage. So adding to the tensions was MTV's prohibiting Nirvana from playing the song they actually wanted to perform. You see, Kurt Cobain wanted to go with a song called Rape Me, but the band had to play Lithium to obviously make MTV happy. So what you have here is a bit of a uh, explosive situation before Chris Novoselic goes out on stage. He's pissed off. So after the bass toss uh, incident goes horribly wrong for Novoselic's face, he ran off stage and rushed back to his dressing room. Now, despite a bloody forehead, relief came in the form of a guy that you may have heard of before, Brian May of Queen. That's right. Brian May of Queen was backstage. Novoselic says that paramedics came in and put a little bandage on my face. And standing behind them was Brian May, the guitarist of Queen, with a glass of chilled champagne. So the medics finished up, so I could take a sip of Mr. May's wonderful medicine, the champagne, and that seemed to help with the healing process. Novoselic says he still owns the bass that uh, he threw up in the air and came down and hit him in the face that day, but the neck is a bit damaged. And I'm sure his face has got a scar. This week in 1956, TV viewers got one hell of a show. You see, Elvis Presley 
made the first of his three appearances on the old Ed Sullivan show. He sang Love Me Tender, Hound Dog, Don't Be Cruel, and Ready Teddy. You gotta keep in mind, it's 1956. Elvis was filmed from the waist up. So that way, his gyrating hips did not offend the television audience. 82.5% of the nation tuned in to watch Elvis sing. The New York Times reported that when Elvis executes his bumps and grinds and his gyrating hips, it should be remembered by CBS that even a 12-year-old's curiosity might be overstimulated. Things have certainly changed since 1956 on TV. This week in 1977, David Bowie appeared on Mark Bolin's TV show singing the song Heroes, as well as a duet with Bolin, a song called Standing Next to You. Now, Mark Bolin, if you don't know, was the lead singer of the band T-Rex. Well, either way, the uh, song that they were performing, Bowie and Bolin, uh, called Standing Next to You, uh, prematurely ended when Bolin fell from the stage, and David Bowie thought that was pretty damn funny. After the show, the pair recorded some demos together, which were never finished due to the fact that Mark Bolin was killed in a car crash just one week later. Back in 2002, Iron Maiden singer Bruce Dickinson started a brand new job. Now, he's already got a job. He's the lead singer of Iron Maiden. But he wanted to branch out, so he became an airline pilot. That's right. He qualified as a $40,000 a year first officer with Gatwick-based airline Astrius, who took holidaymakers from Portugal to Egypt. That's right. He was flying vacationers. Now, for the 2008-2009 Somewhere Back in Time World Tour from Iron Maiden, he flew Iron Maiden's chartered Boeing 757, dubbed Ed Force One. It was specially converted to carry the band's equipment between the continents. Dickinson also flew Ed Force One again for the Final Frontier World Tour in 2011. And for 2016, the Book of Souls World Tour, the band upgraded to a Boeing 747-400 jumbo jet, which... Dickinson flew as well, and he continues to fly uh, today. Iron Maiden singer at night, jet airplane flyer by day. This week, back in 1977, Meatloaf released his second studio album called Bat Out of Hell, his first collaboration with composer Jim Steinman and producer Todd Rundgren. Now, it is one of the best-selling albums of all time, having sold 43 million copies worldwide. And even today, it sells about 200,000 copies per year. Now, the first single released from the album, You Took the Words Right Out of My Mouth, failed to chart when first released. Sometimes it takes a while to get an album going, apparently. It was this week back in 1988 that Guns N' Roses started a two-week run at number one on the charts with the song Sweet Child of Mine. Now, Slash said at the time, that Sweet Child turned into a huge hit, and now it makes me sick. That's right, the guy that came up with it hates the damn song. Slash says, well, wait a minute, I, I like the song, but I hate what it represents. He says he's not fond of the song due to its roots. Check this out. This is where Sweet Child of Mine, one of the biggest songs ever, comes from. He says it, it was simply a string-skipping exercise and a joke at the time. During a jam session at the band's house in uh, L.A. on the Sunset Strip, 
drummer Steven Adler and Slash were warming up and Slash began to play a circus-type melody while making faces at Steven Adler. Rhythm guitarist Izzy Stradlin asked Slash to play it again. So Stradlin then comes up with some chords. Then Delph McKagan creates a bass line and Adler busts out a little bit of a beat. So later on in his autobiography, Slash said, Look, within an hour, within an hour, my guitar exercise had become something else. Lead singer Axl Rose was actually listening to the guys uh, from his upstairs room and was inspired to write lyrics, which he completed the following afternoon. Now, when the band recorded demos, the producer suggested adding a breakdown at the song's end. Now, the guys in Guns N' Roses agreed, but they weren't sure what to do. Listening to the demo in a loop, Axl Rose started saying to himself, where do we go? Where do we go now? Where do we go now? And, well, that's what they ended up using as a breakdown in the song Sweet Child of Mine. You gotta go back to 1991 when Geffen Records threw a party to launch Nirvana's new song called Smells Like Teen Spirit. Now, the party went well. Everyone was very high on this new band and the new single. But here's where it kind of went bad. You see, the guys in Nirvana ended up being thrown out of their own party after starting a food fight. Now, the unexpected success of Smells Like Teen Spirit in late 1991 propelled the album Nevermind to the top of the charts at the start of 1992, an event often marked as the point where alternative rock entered the mainstream. Nowadays, alternative rock radio stations are all over the place, right? We're so used to them. It's just another format, another button on your dial. But you got to go back to 1991, 1992, and think about radio stations, right? If you were a fan of the hard rock or the, you know, the heavier stuff, like, like I was, right? You had a radio station in your city, the Fox, the Bear, whatever it was called. And it had a bunch of deep voiced DJs, right? And they were all making dick jokes. And it was kind of TNA. And that was really the whole thing. And they were playing Van Halen. ACDC, Judas Priest, you were playing Tom Petty, you were playing tons of Guns N' Roses and Metallica because they were huge at the time, right? That was your playlist, basically, and the hair bands too, of course. Then all of a sudden, Smells Like Teen Spirit gets played on that radio station, and that changed everything. That song sounded so different than anything else on the radio station. All of a sudden, that's what it took. Things changed from that day forward for those radio stations as well. A whole damn crazy thing happened after that. The song started to get much more airplay. Now you've got videos of these guys in Nirvana wearing like their mom's sweaters out of a thrift shop and they just looked terrible. They weren't trying to look big hair and cool, right? They were, had a whole different look, whole different sound. Well, guess what? When you're 16, 17, 18, 19 years old, Gen X, you gravitate to that new, cool, hot thing. And it was Nirvana and alternative music. A couple of years later, you've got Pearl Jam. You've got uh, Alice in Chains. You've got Soundgarden. Then you've got Bush and Stone Temple Pilots. And you've got this whole scene happening. All this music is coming out. 
one after the next, and it's good. Lots of great music. Green Day is emerging now, right? So in the mid-90s, all these old rock radio stations are being blown up around the country. And you lose stations called The Fox and The Bear and all that crap, right? And now you've got The Edges and The Ends all showing up around the country. And today we still got a bunch of them, right? Alternative rock radio stations are still around today. In the early 90s, I was working at a, a, a rock station in Buffalo, New York. It was called The Fox, right? Now, I grew up listening to that radio station. I got an internship at that radio station, and then I worked part-time on the weekends and whenever they needed me at that radio station. I was working alongside all these legendary Buffalo DJs, right? This was a thrill of thrills for me. I was doing something I wanted to do, and I was working with guys that I looked up to and listened to constantly. I'd walk down the hall, and I'd be like, oh, my God, this is freaking me out, right? It was a nerve-wracking yet very, very cool experience. Then one day, after Nirvana's being played and all this stuff is starting to happen, I get called into a meeting with a bunch of other part-time uh, workers at the radio station. I go off with all these guys to a meeting, right? All the full-time legendary rock jocks that I grew to love were all going to a different meeting. What was happening was I'm in a meeting and I'm being told uh, that they're blowing up the Fox and they're going to change formats. You've probably seen this happen to your favorite radio stations throughout the years, right? Happens all the damn time. So I'm like, what? What do you mean? No more Van Halen? No more Guns N' Roses? No more Metallica? What the hell's going to happen? What are we going to play? And the guy goes, we're going to play a ton of Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Green Day. And I'm like, whoa, that's freaking cool. Because I loved all that music, right? So I'm sitting there and I'm like, wow. And they're like, you're going to do 7 to Midnight. I'm like, holy shit, I just got a full-time job in radio. I've been working at this for five years trying to make this happen. Wow, what a greatest day of my life. Well, one of the greatest days of my life as far as a career goes. Pretty damn cool. So I'm jacked, right? I come out of that meeting and I'm whistling and I'm like, holy shit, I'm calling my parents and my friends and stuff. Dude, I'm going to be in the air. Then I go back to the other building where the uh, full-time jocks were having their meeting. And they were now all carrying boxes of all their shit. And they were leaving for the last time. They were fired for no fault of their own, right? Just that they didn't fit the sound of the new format. I was this young buck, and they're like, let's pay this guy nothing, and he can go in there and do radio on this alternative rock radio station. All the legends that I worked with, that I looked up to, and that I listened to before I worked with were just gone like that. Boom, gone. And that's kind of how radio works, unfortunately. How many times have you been listening to your favorite station? Hell, I've been part of this numerous times over the years. And next thing you know, it goes from being alternative rock to country, and you're like, what the hell just happened? Why would they do that? Well, because it's all about money, and that's a different story for a different time. Either way, Nirvana, that's the catalyst for changing hundreds of radio stations from rock to alternative rock back in the early 1990s. It was this week back in 2007 that Pamela Anderson's ex-husband, Kid Rock, was involved in an assault on drummer Tommy Lee of Motley Crue, which, by the way, he was also married to Pamela Anderson up until 1998. Now, police interviewed witnesses to the tussle involving the two guys at the MTV Video Music Awards in Las Vegas. That's right, it was on TV. 
Lee was removed from the ceremony while Rock was allowed to stay. Joe Perry of Aerosmith celebrated a birthday this week. Uh, he was born in 1950. Now, Perry had actually taken up the guitar at the age of 10. And even though he is left-handed, he learned to play the guitar in the right-handed style. A substantial early influence on his music was, of course, the Beatles. Joe Perry says that the night the Beatles first played the Ed Sullivan Show, he says, wow, that was something. He says seeing them on TV was akin to a national holiday. Talk about an event. He says, I never saw guys looking so cool. I had already heard some of their songs on the radio, but I wasn't prepared by how powerful and totally mesmerizing they were to watch. It changed me completely. I knew something was different in the world that night. Joe was also uh, later studying to be a marine biologist when he discovered a band called the Yardbirds. He says that they had a sound like he had never heard before, that they had guitars that sound like nothing ever before. The Stones were also pushing the edge with distortion and guitars. He says that distortion and that sound was a big influence on me and, of course, later on in Aerosmith. Apparently, your options for fun in the early 1960s were limited. It was this week back in 1964 that the uh, London Evening News reported that a 16-year-old college boy introduced as Laurie Yarum was everyone's idea of a winner in a Mick Jagger lookalike competition. That's right, a Mick Jagger lookalike competition. You see, this guy, Laurie, looked a lot like Mick Jagger and seemed to kind of know every action in all of Jagger's moves. And the audience that was watching this lookalike contest, they were delighted with his performance. In fact, he won the contest. And that was all fine and good. Everyone's excited. Yay, that dude, Laurie, he looks like Mick Jagger. How cool. Ray A. Well, then the audience gets pissed when they find out that the winner of the Mick Jagger lookalike contest turned out to be Mick Jagger's younger brother, Chris Jagger. Apparently, he was just having some fun. This week back in 1970, Jimi Hendrix gave his very last interview. He had died seven days after the interview was recorded. Now, during the conversation, Hendrix talked about a bunch of uh, new music he wanted to make, a new musical phase with a bunch of different collaborations. He wanted to collaborate with Miles Davis and Paul McCartney. You see, Jimi Hendrix and Miles Davis, they had been jamming together for a few months and were making plans to record together the year before Hendrix's death in 1970. Can you imagine Miles freaking Davis and Jimi Hendrix, two geniuses from two different worlds, putting something together? That would have been cool. And then they were hoping to get Paul freaking McCartney to join them on bass. Here's what they did. They sent a telegram. You see, it's the late 1960s, and that's how you got things done. They sent a telegram in October of 1969 to uh, the Beatles' Apple Records, hoping to get McCartney in for a session. Well, nobody really knows if McCartney was aware of the request, but one of the Beatles' assistants uh, responded the next day telling Jimi Hendrix and Miles Davis that uh, Paul McCartney was out on vacation and wasn't expected back for two weeks. Now, 
this is the time when all kinds of crazy shit was going on with the Beatles, too. You see, um, that same exact day that they received the telegram from Jimi Hendrix, a DJ named Roby Yong from New York's radio station WABC furthered the big rumor back then that Paul McCartney had died in a car crash and had been replaced by an imposter, which obviously wasn't true. Now, the Beatles themselves were also dealing with a lot of internal strife that likely wouldn't have been uh, very well received with a potential McCartney-Hendrix-Davis collaboration. Man, but what could have been Miles Davis, Jimi Hendrix, and Paul McCartney? Back in 2001, Gerard Way of the band My Chemical Romance was walking to his internship at the Cartoon Network. You see, he was a graphic artist. As he's walking to his internship in New York City, he is witnessing the attacks, the 9-11 attacks on the World Trade Center. Now, that day's events inspired him to start a band, which, of course, became My Chemical Romance. Gerard being the lyricist and lead singer. Now, seeing the effects of the attacks firsthand prompted Way to change his views on life in the following weeks. He told Spin Magazine, I literally said to myself, fuck art. I gotta get out of the basement. I gotta see the world. I gotta make a difference. So, to help deal with the emotional effects of the attacks from 9-11 had on him, he started writing lyrics to songs that ended up on My Chemical Romance's first album. Now, they were together for quite a few years. Their album, The Black Parade, is awesome. They did end up breaking up in 2013. This week, back in 2003, Johnny Cash died of respiratory failure at age 71. One of the most influential musicians of the 20th century, known as the Man in Black, although he didn't always wear black. He traditionally started his concerts by saying, Hello, I'm Johnny Cash. He had the number two single called A Boy Named Sue in 1969, plus 11 other top 40 singles. He's a legend, right? Cash also had his own U.S. TV show in the late 60s and early 1970s. He was well known for his outlaw image, particularly in the 1960s when he would smash up hotel rooms, drive his Jeep while all hopped up on pills, and had numerous brushes with the police. This period of his life reached ahead when he was thrown off the Grand Old Opry stage for dragging a microphone stand across all the footlights on the stage. He broke them all in a fit of temper, disrespecting the mother church of country music. Now, right afterwards, he runs outside, gets in his car, and he drives it right into a utility pole, knocking out several of his teeth and breaking his nose. Now, most of Cash's behavioral excesses were the result of drug abuse. He had been arrested like seven times. His most famous arrest occurred in El Paso, Texas in 1965. Johnny Cash had crossed over the border into Juarez, Mexico, to buy some cheap amphetamines, which he had become addicted to in the early 60s. Now, he got busted with over 1,000 tablets of drugs in his luggage. He received a suspended sentence and paid a small fine. Now, another time, Cash spent the night in jail in Carson City, Nevada. Here's the problem. He had to share a cell with a very big, a very threatening, tough guy, Lumberjack, who refused to believe that Johnny Cash was Johnny Cash. 
So Johnny Cash spent most of the night in jail singing all his hits and gospel songs to try to convince this very intimidating lumberjack that he was Johnny Cash. The man never did believe he was who he said he was, but he did fall asleep, so Johnny Cash survived the night intact. This week in 2007, the surviving members of Led Zeppelin announced that they would reform for a star-studded tribute concert in London. Robert Plant, Jimmy Page, John Paul Jones would get together to play a show to remember the late Atlantic Records founder, Ahmet Erdogan. Now, the place of Led Zeppelin drummer John Bonham, who died in 1980, would be taken over by his son, Jason Bonham. The one-off concert, uh, the trio's first performance for 19 years, took place at the O2 Arena in London on November 26th of 2007. It was huge. I mean, as big as it gets. There have been numerous calls for the band to reunite since then and tour, but it hasn't happened for numerous reasons, mostly because Robert Plant says, why? I've been there. I've done that. I moved on to other things. You got to go back to 1955 when Little Richard entered a New Orleans recording studio to begin two days of recording. Now, things were not going well. So during a break, a little Richard and his producer, Bumps Blackwell. How come I don't have a cool name like that? Bumps Blackwell. What a cool... Guys back then had cool names. Little Richard, Bumps Blackwell. Anyway, he went to the Dew Drop Inn in New Orleans for lunch. Now, Richard started playing the piano at the bar like crazy, singing in a loud voice, and he started doing this lewd version of the song called Tutti Fruity. With only 15 minutes left in their recording session... Richard went and recorded the song Tutti Frutti. That's how that legendary tune was born. Back in 2005, the newly refurbished Grateful Dead's original tour bus went on display at the Volo Auto Museum in Volo, Illinois. The 1965 Gillig bus, which Jerry Garcia and the rest of the dead dubbed Sugar Magnolia, was used by the band on their frequent tours across the U.S. between 67 and 85. Now, the ceiling was lined with hundreds of vintage rock posters featuring the Beatles, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, and a lot of other artists who actually visited the bus while on tour. No word on if any drugs were found. Music Notes and More is written, recorded, and pretty much hacked together by me, Jason Ginty. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and check out other episodes that are packed with incredible information about your favorite bands and songs. Be sure to follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You got comments? Love to hear them. Good or bad, I don't care.